Hello, and welcome to the Rules of the Game podcast, where it is my job to discuss and compare democratic institutions. With Arendt Leipart, I discuss some of the fundamental questions regarding democratic institutions based on his seminal book, Patterns of Democracy, Government Forms and Performance in 36 Countries, that he first published in 1999 and then updated in 2012. The book contrasts majoritarian and consensus models of democracy. It teaches a lot about democratic institutions and it greatly increased my own knowledge when I first read it during my studies. While the book has, of course, received some criticism, it remains a benchmark study of democracy. We talk about the stability and functioning of different systems of government and proportional representation in divided societies. I also wanted to know from him whether his conclusions had changed since the first publication of the book in 1999, and we also touch upon recent political events that make consensus models of democracy appear to be the far better choice. Arendt Leipart is really a giant in the study of democratic systems and institutions, being among the most cited political scientists. So I'm honored and grateful to have the opportunity of welcoming him on the Rules of the Game podcast. Arendt Leipart is Professor Emeritus at the Political Science Department of UC San Diego. He received his PhD from Yale University in 1963. Arendt Leipart's research focuses on comparative politics, elections and voting systems, institutions, ethnicity and politics, and he is a leading authority on consociationalism. He is the author and editor of more than a dozen books. He was elected to serve as president of the American Political Science Association in 1995-96. He has received numerous awards throughout his career, including the Johann Skitte Prize in Political Science, the Aaron Wildowski Book Award, and three honorary doctorates. I am your host, Stefan Kiburz, and this is the 34th episode of the Rules of the Game podcast. I am a political economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Bern in Switzerland, and I previously held positions at the London School of Economics and Political Science and the Center for Global Development. You'll find a full transcript of this episode on my website, rulesofthegame.blog. I am always curious to hear your opinion, so please send me an email to Stefan. A great way to support my podcast is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So if you want to do me a favor, please rate the podcast on your favorite platform. If you find my discussions interesting and you'd like to support my work, consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com and you'll find the link to it on my website rulesofthegame.blog. Now, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Arendt Leipart. Arendt Leipart, I'm very honored to welcome you on the Rules of the Game podcast. Thank you. So my first question to all guests is always, what is your first memory of democracy or of politics in general? For me, growing up in the Netherlands, the first memory of uh, democracy was right after the Second World War, 
which uh, was over, of course, in 1945. Uh, I was then eight years old. I had no memory of what happened before uh, before the war. But uh, during the, the, the war under German occupation, of course, there was no uh, democracy at all. In, in fact, uh, Holland lived under the supreme authority of uh, Adolf Hitler. And, uh, and of course, his representatives in the in the Netherlands. After the the, the war, uh, normal politics resumed in the Netherlands. It was the hope of many people during the uh, Second World War that when the war was over, the politics in the Netherlands would be uh, a bit healthier in the sense of not being so divided again. But basically, the first election after the war was very much like the last election <laughs> before the war. But I'm di digressing now. Uh, so things got, get, uh, got, got going again. And I think my first memory was probably uh, that my father was uh, elected to the city council, town council. And so, of course, you know, I listened to conversations having to do with that. Also, my father was a municipality councillor, so that's also one of my first uh, memories. Of course, yours is very far back, and uh, it's always fascinating to hear the stories and where people really, for the first time, felt like democracy and politics as a memory. You have written the book Patterns of Democracy, Government Forms and Performance in 36 Countries, which is uh, in political science a very influential book. And I can recommend it to anybody who wants to learn a lot about institutions in a very short time. And uh, it's really a, a benchmark book in political science and also beyond for a general audience, I think, as well. So in that book, you contrast a consensus model of democracy to a, a majoritarian model of democracy. And you use a lot of different variables, a lot of different main characteristics in systems of government to compare the two. Now, I think to go through all of them would be taking too much time. But for you, what are still the main characteristics or the main elements of the consensus and the majoritarian model? Where, where do we put most emphasis? I think the, the most important characteristic of uh, consensus democracy versus majoritarian democracy is that uh, uh, you have uh, in consensus democracies a multi-party system uh, generally uh, as, as the result of proportional representation. Uh, you have uh, usually coalition uh, cabinets and, and the like. Whereas in uh, majoritarian democracies, typically you have a plurality system of elections. You have a two-party system or close to a two-party system as uh, Britain uh, has, and uh, usually a single party um, majority uh, cabinet. That is one aspect of it. The other aspect of consensus democracy has to do with uh, the division of power, fe federalism and decentralization versus centralized 
government and some characteristics uh, related to, to that. When I wrote my first book on the subject, which was called uh, simply called Democracies, uh, published in 1984, I think, I, I did not have these two dimensions in, in mind. I thought they were all contrasting characteristics of the two models. But then in practice, I found out uh, that there are actually these two separate uh, dimensions. Uh, One uh, has to do with kind of governing together, and the other one has to do with government in separate institutions, like in federalism, where you have uh, you know, it, it's it's not a working together; it's working uh, separately, but presumably uh, in order to achieve a consensus. Of those two, it's the first dimension that's the most important uh, for most countries and the most important for having effects on how how well democracy works. But the other characteristic, the other dimension, rather. While, while not unimportant, does, does not have such important uh, effects on policy. For a long time, some people said that majoritarian systems are, you know, more stable and also therefore more efficient and provide direct governance and, and they are providing better results. But in the book, you clearly show that this is not the case. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on how consensus democracy versus majoritarian democracy, how they differ in how they affect policy outcomes. And you also mentioned in the book that consensus models of democracy provide a kinder and gentler type of democracy and and also government policy. So for a long time, I was convinced by what was the conventional wisdom when I was a graduate student and also you know, once I was uh, once I had my PhD, I, I believed uh, that there were a contrasting uh, differences in, in outcome, uh, that uh, one would choose a consensus democracy. I didn't use that, I wasn't using that term yet, but government with multi-party systems proportional representation and so on, that that would be better for the quality of democracy. You had better minority representation, for instance, uh, but uh, that came at the cost of less efficiency. The, with British government as the, uh, the most important example uh, of uh, majoritarian democracy being the more effective and efficient. That was already challenged not by me originally, but by British political scientist S.E. Finer, who was a very, very well known, one of the top uh, British uh, political scientists, and who um, mainly was thinking in terms of contrasting British government with German uh, government and said, you know, the German government is really just more effective than, than British government. And he uh, he attributed the failure of the British system to the fact that there were too many changes back and forth. You have one government which could make decisions quickly, and then you would have uh, uh, the opposition in, in charge. It would undo a lot of the stuff that the previous government have, have had done and would turn things around. So you, you, you did not have stability 
but in fact you had a great instability in effective policy making including especially of course economic policy making and he said what you have in germany instead you have coalition government which tends to be more in the center and and so even if there is a change in government uh, the the outlook of the government doesn't change all that much when when i started thinking about it in that way i went went back to what finer had to say and basically i would have to uh, agree with him but i guess into the 1980s I, I was still thinking in terms of this, you know, advantages and disadvantages of a consensus system. Uh, 1984, a book which was the first attempt at uh, looking at the two systems of, of government. I didn't go into the the question of policy effects or effects on quality of democracy. I did that in the 1999 book, and I think. I, if I may say so myself, I perfected that in my 2012 second edition. I was then helped by all of the data available on the internet and all of the groups that were making comprehensive indices of effective government, of you know responsible. Uh, government in terms of uh, the environment and so on. And so these were, were all things that I could use and very nicely I had not prepared those. Uh, so I was I, uh, basically, I am completely neutral. I say, well, they are having these, providing these indices, they're great for me to, to use. And so the, the quality of the data became so much better between 1999 and 2012, uh, really uh, something that still still amazes me. And when I was working on the 1999 book, I turned to the internet sometimes too and found that there just wasn't much that I could use. And so I said, forget about that. I'll walk to the library and I'll find the data that I need. It had become completely different uh, when I was working on the 2012 edition. Of course, I was working on it in 2009-2010. So in a little bit more than 10 years, things had completely turned around. So I'm also much more confident in the results that I found in, uh, in my 2012 book. And again, somewhat... You can see how long these prejudices last. Somewhat to my surprise, I found out that consensus democracies are not only better at providing better quality of democracy, better minority representation, better representation of women, and you can kind of go go down a whole list of those kinds of things, but also with regard to the, the quality of government, the quality of policy, looking at uh, economic things like economic growth, inflation, unemployment, and some, some general indicators that economic researchers have made for effective government. And uh, really, with, with very few exceptions, I found consensus democracy doing, uh, doing better. And oh, not just slightly better, I have 36 countries, so uh, a large enough number to do statistical tests on. And, and most of these uh, results on which the consensus democracy is doing 
better. I mean, they're so strong, they're statistically significant. So it's not, not an, uh, it was a surprise to me that it was that strong. I had not expected that. But of course, I was very pleased to see it uh, because it makes my conclusions much sounder. So your conclusions were almost reinforced. Did you yourself get more convinced of that view of the consensus versus the majoritarian model of democracy? Yes, yes. You can't uh, argue with the data. The data shows very clearly that that is the case. And again, I'm just mentioning a few things uh, here, but how many indicators do I have? Like at least 20 or so uh, diff different indicators. And it, it all comes out better that way. And with regard to these kinder and gentler things, it also comes out better. When you look at, uh, you know, which countries have the death penalty which, versus which countries don't, uh, which countries are, do a better job on the, on the environment. And so it really is, perhaps when one reads my book superficially, one would think, I know I'm, I'm prejudiced in, in, in that way, but I can say that I'm, I'm not prejudiced. In fact, I did not expect such <laughs> such outstanding uh, results. So I, I was convinced by the outcome of the data analysis. And I would say to anyone, uh, if you want to redo my analysis, uh, I, all of the data are available on the website of the political science department at UC San Diego. Uh, you can find all the data there. You can do a reanalysis of all of that. And uh, uh, by the time that, I'm, as I said, I'm 86 years old now, when this was my book in 2012, I was 76. By that time, I was not going to write a third edition. In fact, already after the 99 edition, I had decided this is so much work. Uh, that uh, I do not want to do it. But Yale University Press pushed me uh, to do it because that first edition had been quite successful and they, uh, they wanted me to do a second edition. I kept saying no for a long time, uh, but then finally I kind of changed my mind. And I also, I thought the message of the book is important enough to keep it, keep it alive. And, uh, and so I did... Uh, write it, and as I told you, I mean, the the, uh, the results of that second edition are just so much stronger and clearer that uh, I'm very pleased that I did that. And uh, But I do have to say, it was an awful lot of work. It's not like a historian writing about, uh, you know, the history of Europe since the year 2000, and he then wants to, and he or she then wants to update it to 2010. Well, you just write another chapter, right? <laughs> uh, change a few things. But in my case, of course, I had to, I, uh, the, the 36 countries in the two books are not exactly the same, uh, the same countries. Uh, so that was already one change. And basically, I had to go over all of the, the, the individual data for each country. So it was kind of like, it really meant redoing the whole book uh, instead of just adding a chapter or a foreword to it. But again, as I, I said, I'm, uh, I'm glad I, I did it. And I'm, I'm actually hoping, I'm mentioning this to several people, if you want to update all of this, to the year 2020 or 2022, please do. And I'll be very interested in what, uh, what, what the outcome is. Uh, in all probability, 
the, the, the number of countries could be increased. I said this, my, my countries had to be democratic for a period of, I think it was 25 years, I've forgotten now. But in any case, not just uh, a very recent democracy. So there would be some that could be added now, like the East European countries, uh, uh, even though, you know, with regard to Hungary and Poland, one is again doubtful that those are really uh, democracies. But uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, Slovenia, probably not. There are countries that should be added, perhaps some uh, some that should be changed. One other thing that makes me feel that my results are really uh, are really very strong is that with the democracies that I studied, this, those 36, uh, that is not just a sample that I took of democracies. No, it's the universe. It's all of the democracies existing at that time that had been had been democratic for a minimum period of time. In a way, that's a strange conclusion because many countries claim to be democracies, but 36 was the sum total of democracies to meet my criteria. I definitely think it's a remarkable book. Uh, there has been rarely a book that I read that I've learned so much from. You know, my background is more from economics, political economy. So this was really, for me, um, a, a book that changed my understanding of the mechanics of democracies and, and how they work in different types. And I read it also, you know, early in my studies, but I thought it was fascinating. So is that also the reason... You know, you included mostly OECD countries and then also some some emerging democracies. Do you think that was the reason why you didn't include that many, you know, in, in Latin America and in, in African countries? I just went strictly according to the limit of mm -hmm. what was considered the democracies and, and the countries that had been democracies for a minimum period of time. And so I was actually... Uh, more inclusive than some people who do comparative studies because I had the, the population cutoff that is pretty low. I think it's like 250,000 people. And so that made me include countries like uh, the Bahamas, uh, uh, Iceland, and so on. For, with regard to the results, uh, I always uh, controlled for size of country because that can make a, make a difference and also for degree of of development. So uh, those two very important variables are controlled for. But I have a, a huge uh, variation in, in size, uh, population size of these uh, countries. I mean, I have India, of course, is part of, uh, of this. And that's also, I guess, still a developing country. Some other large countries too, the United States, Japan, but still uh, the population of India is larger than all of the 30, other 35 countries combined. So if you ask me, what is the, the main difference between these 36 countries? It's size of population. Obviously, there are differences in degree of development. You can think of a number of other factors. Uh, but uh, I have really a, a huge variety of size of population. One argument that is sometimes made is that in multi-ethnic, multi-religious, plural societies, that 
a proportional representation system would maybe lead to more cleavages because the parties would just form themselves according to different groups, be it religious groups or, or ethnic groups. And many countries, especially in, in, in African countries, they often have not proportional systems, but majoritarian uh, electoral systems, right? What is your view of this? I mean, from the book, we would conclude that proportional systems are better in any case, right? But maybe you can elaborate a bit on how you see this problematic and also maybe related to other countries, right, that maybe were more homogeneous in more older times and became more plural societies as a whole. Many countries where that has happened because of immigration and population movements. That was a, a question that I dealt with in my earlier work with my book, Democracy in Plural Societies, which was published in 1977. And, and there I challenged the view uh, that uh, in plural or deeply divided societies, uh, say something like proportional representation would be uh, more dangerous. My finding there, and of course that I did not have, the, you know, that kind of exact statistical model that I used in the later later book was uh, that what what these countries need is for all of the the groups being able to participate in the government instead of some groups included other groups excluded which is especially serious when these groups are ethnically or religiously based uh, and in, in, in fact, all of this started out with a study that I did of my native country, the Netherlands, which was a deeply divided uh, country with uh, very rigid, separate subcultures, Catholic subculture, uh, Protestant, Calvinist the subculture, and a uh, kind of a relatively unreligious or moderate subculture. And those subcultures, like in, in many cases in Africa, they were not, not talking with each other. They, I mean, I, I have uh, one bit of statistics in, in there showing that, you know, what intermarriage rates were, were like between the different groups. And it was almost non-existent. And when I grew up, would, would a Catholic marry a Protestant? No way. Uh, I mean, it did happen, but it was, was just a glaring exception. Uh, all of this has changed nowadays. In fact, in my family, I feel, I mean, I'm married to a Catholic. My brother is married to a Catholic. <laughs> and I come from a, you know, moderate Protestant background. So that mm -hmm. has uh, changed. But so what is important is for the leaders of these different groups to come together at the top and make a to compromise. And in fact, what is the most dangerous is for one group to achieve exclusive power and other group being excluded. And I think actually that message that was relatively new when I, when I, when I wrote Democracy and Plural Societies in 1977, I think it has become the, the general approach, say, of the United Nations. So what the kind of system that the United Nations uh, suggest for Iraq after the Iraq war. Uh, it is basically that kind of system with proportional representation, uh, saying certain offices should be given to certain uh, group, like the president, I think, of uh, Iraq has to be occurred, and you know things like that. That does not guarantee that that will work better, 
but I think it is much better than sim simply saying we'll just elect the president and, you know, especially if the president has great power, that means the president is the representative of one particular group and the other groups are excluded. So in, in many countries in Africa, you have very significant uh, ethnic uh, differences. What would I suggest for those countries? Uh, if, if you think proportional representation is dangerous, and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it is, well, you, you will certainly get more clearly ethnic or religious parties. But as long as the leaders are willing to work together, that is not, in my view, not, not a problem. And what is the alternative? Uh, certainly a presidential system is about the worst uh, that can be taught. But unfortunately, most of those countries seem to want presidential systems. And you just saw it recently in, um, in, in Nairobi and in Kenya where you, you, you have these two contenders that are actually very close in, uh, in, in terms of the election re result. They should be working together instead of one being the winner and the other one being excluded. Uh, now, this time it seems to have been relatively peaceful, but it uh, ended up with the basic, with a lot of ethnic uh, strife the, the last time around and a lot of people being uh, being killed in that uh, strife. So you could have the, a British system with a parliamentary system, uh, but with the, you know, a, a majoritarian type, you know, you have the same kind of problem uh, that uh, you're likely to have one, one group in power and the other group excluded. And what you, what you need again is to have a system in which the leaders co cooperate. So what, what is generally the best system in my uh, is it's a parliamentary system and proportional representation. That does not guarantee that it, that it will work well, but at least it has better possibilities than either the, the, the British type or, say, an, an American-style presidential system. It's, it's really too bad that both the United States and Britain have been such models for other countries for a long time. And uh, of course, the, you know, the British have exported their model to their colonies. Uh, and uh, the, the United States model was of, of such great importance in South America. Both, you know, I think, very, very unfortunate historical happenings. And also, I did a lot of uh, research actually on Nigeria, like more political economy research. But also in Nigeria, that has a very majoritarian model of democracy. Of course, it's a it's a federal system, so that might compensate some of the issues. But still, it's a presidential system. It's a first past the post systems at all levels of government, and also that I think that was strongly influenced by the American model. Yeah, the American and the British model, of course, you know, the British colony. So it's a kind of a combination of the, it combines the worst of the American and British models. And also interesting is actually that Switzerland is also a very plural society with different religions, the Catholics, the Protestants, uh, which were severe opponents. You had different languages and only proportional representation electoral system in 1919 was it introduced and also this special type of government the federal council right instead of having 
one president, there are seven people who, who shared power and have to make decisions together, which is a very unique, it's very rare system. But those elements were really important for the Swiss plural society to become that type of consensus model of democracy. Absolutely. And so I actually, in my, my book, I use uh, Switzerland and, and Britain as a kind of almost pure examples of consensus versus majoritarian government. I, I doubt that the Swiss model is a good one for export to other other countries, uh, even even though the Switzerland, the federal council is really closer to a parliamentary system than a than a presidential system. Uh, partly because because it is a coalition a government, and uh, and it it avoids the the one one person control. In a parliamentary system, if you have a cabinet, there's the prime minister still tends to be. Primus inter pares, to use the, the Latin uh, term, always the more, more important. Even though in most parliamentary systems, I anyway, look, look at uh, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, Belgium, and, and, and so on, the prime minister is not as powerful a figure as it is in, in British government. Mm-hmm. There's much more a sense of collegial government. But I would say this well, one problem with the Swiss system, it's kind of hard to think of how you would uh, install something like that in a different country. So I would still better just go for a straightforward parliamentary system and proportional representation. And then if it looks like federalism is a good addition to that, I'm I'm all in favor of that, and I, I think that can also help get, getting uh, some you know, minority representation if you have geographically concentrated minorities. So one argument about parliamentary system that is that we hear very often is that it doesn't provide for stable governments. What is your counter-argument against this problematic of unstable governments in, in parliamentary system? I guess I have two arguments. One is that, uh, how do you measure stability? And uh, I mean, this was often said that the French Fourth Republic being uh, especially unstable, uh, the, the government. But if you look closely, from one government to the next, the personnel in the cabinet uh, did not change much. So it wasn't, in fact, all that unstable. And uh, the second, my second argument would be, uh, what is that stability for? Is that in order to achieve uh, good policy results? If it doesn't do that, then what's the purpose of, of stability? And uh, according to my results, it does not provide a better quality government. I totally agree with that. So based on your book for the United States, what would be your recommendation? I guess proportional representation is, you know, there is a huge discussion going on right now or huge. There is a discussion. I don't know exactly how big it is. So I guess you're in favor of that too. Yes, I'm in favor of proportional representation for the United States. There is a lot of discussion of that. Uh, there is a, a very active uh, think tank uh, in Washington called Fair Vote uh, that uh, they've had some good results at the state and local level in getting proportional representation. 
or often called the, the single transferable vote or the alternative vote, to have mm -hmm. that introduced instead of just simple plurality. I'm in favor of all, all of those uh, things, but ideally it would be proportional representation. That would be number one. Uh, the other one would be to, and that would actually be relatively, it's not going to happen very soon, but it, that would be relatively easy to introduce uh, because it does not require a change in the American Constitution. It can simply be legislated by Congress. So if Congress are to decide now uh, that all elections should be by proportional representation, they could do so if they would be willing to do it. Uh, the other thing that I would like to get rid of is the presidential system and introduce the parliamentary uh, system. That, of course, is anchored in the Constitution, but that would be you just, uh, I would want, want to make the United States into another Germany, for instance. And uh, Germany is not a bad uh, example because other than, say, Sweden, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and so on, uh, Germany is a big country. Now, I think probably 90 million people or so. United States is still bigger, but it's kind of the same order of, of magnitude. Uh, so, you know, the argument is not that, oh, well, but those are very small countries. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you, you have Germany as an example. I mean, smaller changes. I, I think the United States, uh, the democracy works uh, very badly. And right now it is under extreme threat from Trump. So I don't know where that is going to, to lead. One of the, the problems there is the American system of uh, partisan primaries, which give the, give the extremes of the parties too much influence. And right now the extreme, I mean, um, I, mean I think it's ridiculous. Uh, Republicans talk about this turn to the, to the far left of the Democratic Party, which I think is just so r ridiculous if you think that the, the Democratic Party is still way to the right compared with European social democratic parties. But in any case, so I do not think that there's the extremes in the Democratic Party are as serious as the extremes in the Republican Party. But in any case, uh, that is what primaries do. And it's really um, an interesting result because those primaries were put in by the progressive movement uh, or were advocated by the progressive movement in order to give, quote, the people, unquote, a more influence. Uh, but the way it has worked in practice uh, is that um, uh, it gives the extremes more influence and the extremes are really just not representative of the larger population. You don't see much discussion of that. Actually, I'm in the middle of reading a New York Times article in the New York Times of today, uh, which raises this question of what the result of uh, uh, partisan primaries are. So one reform, I would say, just abolish the primaries altogether and get back to the, quote, smoke-filled rooms, unquote, <laughs> where, the, where the, the leaders of the parties make the decision. And uh, uh, I think the, 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 the British government, of course, and the British Conservative Party made just a huge mistake in having their primary uh, with the, the, the dues-paying members of the Conservative Party making the final decision on the leader of the party and the, and the prime minister. I mean, that is just, well, I have only one word for it. It's an idiotic idea. An mm -hmm. idiotic idea. I mean, to, to think that that gives the people some influence, you know, this handful of conservative 
party members to give them the final word on who is the, the most important uh, leader in the, in, in the country. I don't really, I don't understand how they got to such a ridiculous <laughs> method of, of selecting a, a, a leader. The way it used to be, you have elected conservative members of parliament. These elected members should choose their new leader. And that's the way it used to be. I think that is, given, the, given that the British system is majority, there are lots of disadvantages, but that seems like the logical way of selecting who should be the leader of the party. But in the end, the members of parliament, they had a say, right? So the candidates needed their support. That is, uh, that is true. No, no leader can stay in power uh, without uh, the support of parliament. But you saw in the case of uh, Liz Truss, who now just recently resigned and now she's being replaced by somebody else, that uh, the ideas that she had were more the ideas of these very conservative formal members of the of the party uh, but once she was elected you know the, then the members of parliament just ex accepted that as that was was the choice but indeed uh, i don't know you you probably know the name of juan Linz, uh, who was uh, the first person to really go uh, straight into this fight against presidential uh, government and uh, then he says you know what Parliamentary government, like in Britain, is that better? Obviously, his real preference was also for parliamentary government and proportional representation. But he's, he shows that even in a government of Britain with the majoritarianism and a strong prime minister, if the prime minister loses the support of parliament, he or she is out. That's what happened with Margaret Thatcher. You know, the so-called Iron Lady, Conservative members of parliament didn't like her anymore. She was a goner. And also Juan Linz uh, is obviously uh, an important uh, contributor to that discussion. And I had uh, several discussions on presidentialism versus parliamentarism and also on, on semi-parliamentarism. Actually, there is also some, some new books there, which I think are really interesting. Yeah, I feel we could go in so many different directions. Uh, there is so much to talk about. Unfortunately, times are, are quite hectic in many countries. I wish uh, it would be a more calm and I think a more consensus-oriented uh, model of democracy would definitely lead to more <laughs> calm politics instead of these uh, really extreme swings between uh, left and right. Do you have any other books that you would recommend to the audience. I definitely will link to your research and your book, of course. Yeah, anybody who has, uh, I can't think of, Juan Linz wrote uh, together with Arturo Valenzuela on the, on the questions of uh, parliamentarism and presidentialism, on the question of deeply divided societies and what the best uh, government is. Two people Uh, whose work I would recommend is uh, Brendan O'Leary, who is mm -hmm. uh, originally from Ireland, and he's done a lot of work on Northern Ireland. 
And I, of course, I've been in, involved in uh, thinking about making proposals for Northern Ireland, which have, which have led to the Good Friday Agreement. But he's written a lot more about those, about Northern Ireland, and about lots of other countries, several of which you know I have not covered in my work. The other one is John McGarry. John, it's McGarry, G-A-R-R-Y. He's at Queen's University in, uh, in, in Canada. He's worked a lot together with uh, Brendan O'Leary. Brendan O'Leary is at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I know both of them quite well. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to go beyond that, you know, ask them for further names. I mean, they're very active in that whole uh, network on my work on what I've called consociational democracy or power-sharing democracy, having specifically to do with uh, deeply divided societies. On this question of consensus democracy, there, there are two names of people who have done further work on that. One is Adrian Vater, uh, who is at the University of Bern. Uh, you probably know, know him uh, from them. He has worked together uh, with the, the Julian Bernauer, uh, who is at yeah. the University of Constance. Exactly, uh, yeah, I know them, and I'm happy to include those recommendations, of course. Uh, and so, because I have, uh, after, especially after finishing the 2012 Patterns of Democracy, I have really not been following all the literature anymore. Uh, so I said by the time that I had finished that, I was 75, 76 years old, about time to really retire. And so I've been trying to be really retired since then. This doesn't always work completely, like I'm just <laughs> now talking with you about the professional uh, things. But basically, you know, I have uh, uh, I've not been going to conferences and uh, I'm basically left all of that behind me. There's lots of things going on, of course. Uh, it's impossible to follow everything <laughs> and right. the literature, but I'm very, very grateful. Uh, you have taken the time, even during your retirement. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks a lot for all your contributions and, of course, for the conversation. It has been a great pleasure. Good. You're very welcome. It was interesting to me to, to, to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really appreciate you've taken the time. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. It really helps my message to get heard. If you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the podcast, don't hesitate to contact me by email at stefan.kybertz.com at gmail.com. I'll put my email address in the show notes. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Twitter at Skybirds, that's S-K-Y-B-U-R-Z, and on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.